0: You can open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at just one verse. Once again, it's a transitional verse like we did when he entered into chapter 3. And here we'll see Paul's pastoral concern for his people. The title for this sermon is The Joy of Pastoral Affection. The Joy of Pastoral Affection. And we'll see that this concluding chapter, when we get to the rest of it is full of Paul's heart for his people. Full of Paul's heart for his people. Sure, he's an apostle, but we know that along with Peter and John, they themselves saw themselves as elders together with fellow elders of local churches and congregations. So here, apostles are pastors themselves. And uh, and this this verse here just bursts full of Paul's own affection for this church. And we'll learn a few things of what it means to be a pastor, and what we can look for in a pastor, just from this single verse. So, let's read Philippians four, verse one. One verse. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. My beloved, let's pray. Father, grant us now from this passage, a single verse, the ability to recognize faithful pastoral ministry to be encouraged by it from those who have labored over our souls um, and to pray that the word will continue to flourish and go out in our day and our time for jesus sake amen what shapes your expectations of the pastoral ministry (laughs) what shapes your expectations There are many things that could shape your expectations from within your own thoughts of what a pastor should be, from perhaps the blogs out there or the description of what pastors are in the secular realm. What shapes your idea of what a pastor should be? In 1980, Eugene Peterson summed up the modern pastoral ministry with this description. Now, it's a long quote, But I want you to listen to how he sums it up. I think it captures really well what pastors face in the 20th and 21st centuries. Pastoral work takes place in a crowded religious fair, noisy with the bargaining of shoppers and hawkers. Those who have turned out in the hope of finding something that will make their lives better. And those who promise that they have something that will make life better. The shoppers expect to receive something that they could not otherwise get on their own and to learn something that they could not discover themselves. They expect to get in on something that transcends the natural and to understand something that exceeds the mundane. The ordinary term for what they expect is God. And they expect the pastor to give it to them. And since no one has ever seen God at any time, the pasture is perfectly visible most times. The expectations that people have of God are often focused on the pasture, the bull's eye for God targeted expectations. The expectations converge from a wide horizon moral idealism, spiritual hunger, evidence of righteousness, advocacy of justice, rewards for being good, answers to enigmas. What people, informed by the grapevine of religion, are looking for is aimed at the pastor. As such, the pastor is an enviable position. But the enviableness of the pastor's position pulls no little bit when we realize that we are not the only ones to whom people come for help in competing with God-related expectations. We work on a street teeming with competition. Every kind of religious leadership is offered to persons who want God. No pastor is provided with the luxury of people's exclusive attention. Congregations are not sequestered between Sundays from religious propaganda and spiritual promises. From radio message and television spectacular, newspaper advice and magazine wisdom, religious counsel and gospel preaching pour into the mind at an unprecedented rate. St. Paul Angry at schismatic itinerants who were unsettling its congregations with gaudy but cheap doctrines faced only a fraction of what today's pastor gets from competitors. 1980. Add today the internet, the blogs, YouTube, and you have even more of an influx of what people can get out there from cheap but gaudy doctrines. So, what shapes your expectations of a pastor? We'll learn three things about faithful pastoral labors from this text this morning. We'll learn something about pastoral affections. We'll learn something about pastoral rewards. And thirdly, we'll learn something about pastoral responsibilities. Pastoral affections, pastoral rewards, and pastoral responsibilities. Let's look at the first pastoral affections. The first duty of a pastor is to love those entrusted to his care. That's the first duty every pastor faces, is called to love the flock entrusted to his care. The question is, what does this love look like? What is it that you expect of this love? Now, one of the key metaphors used of pastors in Scripture is that of a shepherd. The most famous passage itself is Psalm 23, where David exalts the Lord God as the divine shepherd. And there we can learn from Psalm 23 what a shepherd's like, what a shepherd should do, how he nourishes, how he leads his sheep, how he protects his sheep, how he he nourishes and cares for and keeps together the sheep. But one of the classic passages in the Old Testament is Ezekiel 34 which really tells us the nature of shepherding put against false shepherding in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 34 is a prophetic announcement against the shepherds of Israel, those who were put in charge of the spiritual welfare of God's people in the Old Covenant. And these refer to the leaders of Israel. The leaders of Israel were a group mixed up with kings and priests, both those who officiated, as well at, um, officiated the secular realm as well as the religious realm, and these leaders were placed over Israel to be their shepherds, to care and nourish for Israel. But in this passage, it was shown very clearly that they fed themselves rather than nourishing the flock. In their ministry, they led the flock to open slaughter before the beasts of the nations through idolatrous practices being allowed to infiltrate Israel itself and also through allowing the nations to ravage the people through obviously the protection that they were not providing to the sheep the faithless shepherds of Israel was juxtaposed against that shepherd who will to come, the Lord himself, who will nourish his own sheep. And he promised a shepherd that will be placed over them, the shepherd of David, who will nourish them and keep them and draw them in. And we know who that shepherd is. In John 10, Jesus stands up amongst Israel, amongst the religious leaders of his day, amongst the temple leaders, amongst the leaders over the secular well-being of the people, and Jesus says these words, I am the good shepherd. (laughs) If you were a Jew, you would think of Ezekiel 34 right at that moment. The promise that there will come a shepherd Like David, who will be over God's people. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And then he says, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And then he goes on to describe, in contrast to the shepherds of Ezekiel 34, what his ministry is. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he goes on to say, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is the promise of the new covenant that God was given in Ezekiel 34. The promise of the faithful shepherd will be Jesus. And what does he do? Two key points of contrast is found here, and that the true shepherd will emulate. The true shepherd versus the false shepherds is that he will lay down his life For his sheep, he will not be self-serving. He will pay the ultimate sacrifice of love and care. No greater love is there that a man lay down his life for his friends. And secondly, as the actions of the false shepherd cause the flock to be scattered, Jesus gathers in the flock. He goes out and seeks and saves those who are lost. He goes out into the world and sends his under shepherds into the world to seek and save those who are scattered abroad so that they will be brought into the fold and be under his nourishing care through his word. He is the good shepherd. Now Paul is one of those sent out to gather in the flock. That's part of the apostolic ministry. That's part of the pastoral task. That's part of the Christian's duty. Every single person is to do this. But it is Jesus himself through the apostles that is now reaching out and bringing in the lost sheep and drawing them into his fold. And so Paul writes here in the beginning part of this first verse, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. Paul's ministry of love was modeled after Jesus' own self sacrificial living. And we have seen this in Paul's own writing to this letter, all the way in chapter 1, for example, where he lays down his life for the cause of the gospel. He's in prison right now, facing possible execution for the cause of the gospel amongst these people.
1: He's not living in a
0: mansion. He's not buying a new jet. He is under suffering right now for the furtherance of the Philippians' faith. He is laying down his life. Paul's whole identity was called up with the progress and joy of the faith of God's people who are now being gathered into the church. This is what he wrote in chapter 1 verse 25 when he was wondering if he will depart this world or if he will remain. And he said, I will remain and continue. Why? The one purpose for your progress and joy in the faith. This is... What love looks like from a shepherd. (laughs) This is what love looks like if you have a pastor who is over you and cares about your joy and progress in the faith. And Paul lived his life for the furtherance of the gospel. In the Gentile world to bring in the lost sheep of Israel. And this church here in Philippi had a particular special place in his heart. It's interesting that here in this verse he repeats the word beloved twice in the original. The literal translation of this verse is something like this Therefore, my beloved and longed for brothers and sisters included in that, my joy and crown, thus stand firm in the Lord, beloved. <laughs> He's reiterating his love for them. My beloved, I love you so much. And on the back of what does this verse come? It comes on the back of chapter 3, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And it's on the back of those who have departed from the faith. And he's now encouraging this church. These people, some of whom maybe haven't departed from within their own community and were now causing trouble for this community, now have departed and become enemies of the cross. Now Paul is saying to these who have the hope, eternal hope of Christ's return, who will transform their lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He's saying to them, stand firm. He's pleading with them.
1: Why? Because he loves them. (laughs) That's what a pastor does. He pleads
0: with his flock. Because he loves them. Paul is expressing a deep emotional love for these people on whose account he is in prison facing the death penalty. (laughs) And his goal is that they be gathered into the body and remain united in the Lord. That's been the theme right throughout this entire epistle. So the love that a pastor displays for his people is the love of a shepherd. The self-sacrificial love that gathers the flock and leads them to pastures where they will be nourished. This is done through faithful preaching and teaching of the word so the flock doesn't graze among the religious idolatries of the day. And this is done through the fetching in of straying sheep and bringing them back to the fold in active pastoral care, where the wolves appear that seek to ravage the flock. The pastor will defend the sheep at risk, at risk to his own life and reputation.
1: And there are wolves out there. No wolves out there.
0: <laughs> I know a lot of people are listening to this podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, interested in what happened to Mark Driscoll. And for all of the wrongs that went down and things we can learn, there is one big key thing to observe of that podcast. That guy does not love conservative theology. As it's dangerous stuff. You've got to know the person that's presenting these things and the agendas they have. Pastors will say, watch out. Rather don't listen. Stay away. Why? Because it's bad for your soul. And they'll be hated for that even.
1: I can foresee
0: that podcast destroying churches. There's an example. Faithful shepherd looks at that and runs in between the wolves and the sheep and puts his own life and reputation on the line and lies there being ravaged himself rather so that the sheep will remain safe and live in peace. That's what a pastor does. That's what love is. This is what Paul risked in his own reputation, to protect this Philippian church in chapter 3, around the beginning, against the dogs and evildoers who sought to ravage them with false doctrine. He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't love his own life to the point where he would save it, but rather he defended. That's the first one. Pastoral affection. Paul loved these people. And as a result, he longed to be with them. And you know what? One day we will be all together in glory. That's even better, but longed for them. But he longed to see them endure. Hmm. Secondly, pastoral rewards. Now, I don't think if the pastoral ministry were all self-sacrifice and no reward, anyone would enter it. If we were all just self-sacrifice, no reward, I don't think anyone would want to become a pastor. But there is rewards. I mean, the pastoral ministry offers great reward to those who pursue faithful shepherding and a call to that. Now, that isn't to say that pastors kind of get a larger scoop of ice cream on the side because they are God's favorites, Right. You know, that's, that's not not what we're saying. The pastors are the special people and the pastoral office is like the highest office of ministry you can get into and that's the strive the holiest of Christians reach there. That's not true at all. In fact, I often tell, used to tell young pastors when we were training for ministry, coming in, especially we had young guys that would come right out of um, school or, you know, they'd be young and adventurous and just want to get their hands there, want to get into the office and so excited about it. And I always say, just remember that the Lord chooses the least <laughs> So that he can magnify his wisdom. So if he's chosen the least, which is all Christians, that's what Paul says in in 2 Corinthians, that he's chosen the least in the world to bring to nothing those who think they are wise, he has chosen the worst of the worst to become pastors, so that in them his glory is manifest. So don't be humble. But there's these great rewards... And this is where Paul gets to next in this verse. He says here, he says to the Philippians, "Whom I love, my joy and crown." You see that, my joy and crown. These are benefits of pastoral ministry. One of the passages where the words joy and crown are used together in the same way is found in one Thessalonians two verse nineteen, where Paul writes, "For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ is coming? Is it not you?" And then he adds in verse 20, for you are
1: our glory and joy.
0: Once again, the background background justification for the sentiment is found in Ezekiel 34, where the unfaithful shepherds are called to account for their labors before God and was found to, in like economic terms, give little return on the investment entrusted to them. Rather than gathering and nourishing the flock, the flock was found to be scattered and malnourished. And Paul is speaking in terms of faithful shepherding says that he has reason to boast because the flock he has gathered in and has nourished through his ministry will be seen to be his prize, his pride and joy, his crown. And in this he has joy. There's great joy in pastoral ministry. So if you ever have a pastor who's always just miserable, there's a, pro- there's a problem, right? There's a problem. There's a problem. Let me tell you, if it were not for this deep sense of joy that transcends difficult circumstances, I don't know why anyone would aspire to the pastoral office. I don't know why. It's full of problems. The pastoral ministry is beset with many discouragements and disappointments, many. I've often said it was by far the hardest job I've ever entered into. and I had some hard jobs. I used to work in the peak of HIV and AIDS in South Africa with HIV and AIDS. And I saw communities ravaged, people die, babies, children. I saw a lot of death. And still one of the hardest things I ever done was become a pastor. Because the discouragements are many, especially when you see people receive the word with gladness and it frizzled up in light of the world's pressures. Or people just hard hearted. Claim to be Christian, just reject the word, and time and time again it doesn't enter and soften the hearts. It, there's many disappointments and discouragement. Or you fight your own sin. That's the worst of all. <laughs> In the own the word doesn't penetrate my own heart as much as I would like to. You know, these things make one discouraged. It costs many pastors into depression and causes a great deal of anxiety. <laughs> Paul himself acknowledged the anxiety of the pastoral office in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 28, where after listing all of the danger and sufferings he had endured on account of the gospel ministry and everything, shipwrecks, beatings, torture, you know, you name it, he faced it. And then he says this, the climax of that list. And apart from all other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. Anxiety for the churches. And yet, there is a yet. Nothing can compare to the joy a pastor has in the continual growth and well-being of the flock when they are growing spiritually and others are coming to faith for the first time. Nothing compares to that. It's one of the hardest jobs I did, one of the most fulfilling and rewarding tasks I've ever accomplished. You see up front people receiving the word and growing and being nourished. You see people changing, countenance, going from darkness and hopelessness to joy and light. You are firsthand experiencing as you're walking with new disciples and the excitement and that you feed off that. And so there's great joy, great reward. And Paul is sitting here in a Roman prison. (laughs) And he has received the love and support of this church in Philippi through Epaphroditus. Can you imagine how that would have encouraged his soul? I mean, Epaphroditus risked his own life to bring Paul this gift. And obviously a letter to which he's responding, that he's reading. And obviously great words of thankfulness and appreciation for his ministry. Can you imagine how encouraged he would have been? But the joy goes even deeper than the present situation. And that's where we get to where Paul refers to the message, it's his crown. It's a crown. I mean, this is the image of a victor's wreath that the athletes wore In the ancient world. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25, Paul wrote, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable receive. Speaking of the Christian life. And here Paul refers to these Philippian Christians as his wreath, his crown. So this joy is eschatological. It's going to be at the end. Can you imagine, Christian, if you get to glory one day and you're walking through all the many throngs of people and there in the midst of these people is someone that you had witnessed to and prayed for and thought, this is hopeless, it's never going to happen. There they are. The excitement. I remember, you know... (laughs) I was a really troubled teenager, really troubled. I expelled from our high school. I had to finish high school in a, in a different, different high school. And I remember I was, I was a mean young man. And I told our principal when he expelled me, I said to him, one day I'll get you. And the Lord saved me at 21. And I was working in a Christian bookstore and now I'm laboring with the sale books. And who do I see? It's my old principal. I've got to speak to him. And I, t- I remember, I remember so vividly, a on the shoulder and said, Mr. Harrison, and he turned around and he like went, what, you know? Finally, he's. Gone. And I said to him, you know, I work here. The Lord saved me. And he was so excited because he was a Christian. And he told me about my other friend who was heavily on heroin. He said, do you know Ryan saved? I was like, what? Never. I thought Ryan was a lost cause. Everyone thought I was a lost cause. And, and I got hold of Ryan on Facebook, and the Lord had saved him. Oh, he was messed up, but the Lord had saved him, and he was living, and he was doing well. And he was going to a church, and pastors get to see these things up close many times. Paul's experience, can you imagine him entering to glory, and all the people he witnessed to they're all standing there. They're there with the Lord and they're rejoicing. There are many throngs of angels and we've made it. And Paul's saying, he looks on these people and he's thanking the Lord and praising them and being encouraged through his faithfulness. He's a faithful shepherd. He knows that his faithful ministry will produce those famous words. longed for all, by all of God's people. Well done, good faithful servant enter into my father's rest you see friends a faithful pastor must look to this eternal reward to remain faithful in the present he must look to that you go encourage him to look to that if he takes his eyes off this reward he will look at serving the people rather than his lord who called him If he takes his eyes off that reward, he will be discouraged and overwhelmed by distress in the present. If he takes his eyes off that eternal reward, he will want to be liked by men more than being faithful to their souls. He is set to he is to set this eternal joy and reward before God and Christ above all things, including the popularity among people listen to what John Owen writes of the text of Jesus in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that verse where it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured, endured the cross. This is what John Owen writes on, for the joy set before him. This joy, writes Owen, was the glory of God and the salvation of the church. The glory of God herein is the center and the soul of all his glory. This is the Lord Christ preferred before, above and beyond all things, and that the exaltation of it was committed unto him was a matter of transcendent joy to him. You see, the glory of God above all things is what Christ looked at. Yes, the glory of God in the salvation of the church and the salvation of a people. But it's the glory of his father that Christ looked to. That was the joy that made him move forward. And if your pastor has lost his eyes on that joy, you're in great trouble.
1: He's got to keep that before him.
0: Thirdly, pastoral responsibilities. Why does he have to keep his eternal reward before him? Because he has these responsibilities to your souls. In Hebrews 12 verse 17, we learn that the, sorry, 13 verse 17, we re- learn that the responsibility of a pastor is to keep watch over the souls of those entrusted to his care. As to those who will give an account. That's their responsibility. Once again, Owen Owen gives us really good insight into this verse. He writes this, John Owen, The apostle compresses here the whole duty of the pastoral office with a manner of its discharge, and this latter is what he principally intends here. They watch the design, the care, and diligence against troubles, dangers, and oppositions as those who must give an account. You see that? They watch the design, that is, the... The church structure, that is to watch the church, the flock, the care, and be diligent against troubles, dangers, and oppositions. That's his duty. And this is where Paul comes to next in his final imperative. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is a warning. This is a warning a lot of what he just spoke of those falling away, those who had become enemies of the cross. Paul gives his imperative to these Christians, stand firm. Don't be swayed by their clever and cunning language. Don't be swayed by their new theologies. Don't be swayed by their testimonies. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He's pleading with them. And with this, he has to employ all the measure entrusted to his care to enable them to stand firm. And the measures we've seen in the whole letter by itself, he has to teach them, instruct them. He has to rebuke them. I mean, think about <laughs> chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. I mean, that passage there, I mean, think about it. We're going to head to chapter 4 here. The very next verse, uh, verses is division within the church. Edeo and Sintiqa, they must agree in the Lord. So imagine that and a lot of that. He speaks of unity. How can you speak of unity when there's these divisions? Well, what, that's what he does. He tells them that they should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. <laughs> He tells them not to be proud, not be conceited. I mean, it's pretty hard words if you think about it.
1: He has to rebuke them, he has to admonish them, he has to
0: warn them. He does that in chapter 3. He has to encourage them. He's doing that now. Stand firm. Showing that their bodies are going to be transformed when the Lord returns. He encourages them with these words. And he does all of this with a loving and self-sacrificial heart, keeping one hour on the eternity and another hour on his flock. It's a tough and difficult task. I remember what Eugene Peterson said, Peterson said in that opening quote. What are we competing with? every kind of religious leadership, many different people offering you what you want in religion out there. We're competing with YouTube channels, blog articles. We're competing with a cultural drift from political worldview and a people saturated with opinions from external sources and Twitter quotes. (laughs) We're competing here in an age where every person has become an expert and every authority has been questioned. Pastors are competing with therapists and counselors who are more interested in people's feelings than they are in the souls of those who will face the judgment seat of Christ. And then the pastor is expected to preach accurately every Sunday, counsel perfectly every troubled soul, answer accurately every question, live perfectly before every watching eye. These
1: are the
0: expectations. Of a mere mortal like you and me. That's why Peterson puts it in these expectations converge from a wide horizon. Moral idealism, spiritual hunger, evidence of righteousness, advocacy for justice, rewards for being good, answers to enigmas. The people informed by the grapevine of religion are looking for is aimed at the pastor. (laughs) And yet his calling man mandate given in scripture is this. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. And then Paul adds, for the time is coming when people not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves, teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The pastor
1: is facing a culture like that.
0: So no wonder Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16 after saying that the pastoral ministry is like an aroma. That's what he says, the apostolic ministry, as well as the pastoral ministry. It's like an aroma to those being saved, a lovely fragrance of life. But to those perishing, the stench of death and he climax by adding this, who is sufficient for these things? Who? Hmm. Friends, your pastor's primary responsibility is to get you to stand firm in the Lord. That's his job. If he gets everything else wrong, but gets this one thing right, and that is to faithfully warn you of the judgment to come and so exhort your souls to cling to Christ, to mention culture of death, so that you may have life, then he has been faithful to you. Who cares about the counselor so enamored with your feelings when your very life hangs in the balance and you and your feelings will go into hell? Who cares about that when that judgment day comes? What good does it do to pet your desires and feed your carnal cravings when the judgment looms dark ahead and the only manner of escape is to confront your sin and and point you to a savior who can rescue your dying soul? If you want a therapist, they're in abundance today. You can find them everywhere. They'll tell you what you want to hear. They'll tell you that it's not your fault. It's your past. It's everything else around you, just circumstances. It's not your fault. You've got nothing to do with it. They'll pity you. But if you want to find a faithful pastor, they're becoming harder and harder to find. Because the culture is silencing them. Because it's uncomfortable to be exposed. But a pastor will admonish you to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If he does this and only this, he's done you a great service. He will tell you to stand firm in light of the glorious return of Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, who will raise our lowly bodies and transform them to be like his glorious body. A faithful pastor will plead with you to stand firm thus in the Lord and risk being unpopular. And he will get those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And if he is focused on that day, then that's all that will matter, even if the world turns against him, like it did all the way back many centuries ago when one man stood against the heresy.
1: Hmm. There's one
0: man, Athanasius. I think there's a saying called, you know, Athanasius Contramundum. That's the saying that's, that's an epitaph to his own life. Athanasius was a church father, and Athanasius Contramundum means Athanasius against the world. <laughs> that's because he alone stood for a long time writing and fighting and pleading for the gospel, the deity of Christ. Sometimes your pastor will stand against the
1: world. But if
0: he does so faithfully, he deserves your thanks. If not now, when you get to heaven. You see him. You remember this day, and you go to him and say, "Thank you. You warned me faithfully, and here I am. My body is renewed." <laughs> so, what shapes your expectations of the pastoral ministry? What shapes it? It's the world. Is it shaped by therapeutic culture? The shaped by a consumer market of religious experience. What shapes it? Have you been honest by yourself and thinking, what is it that shapes my view of what my pastor should be? Or is it shaped by the Word of God and grounded in an internal perspective? And if it's shaped by the Word of God, I tell you what, you will draw to Scripture to find out what a pastor is, And also know from scripture that he is but a mere mortal like you. Who himself is striving like Paul. This is exactly what Paul said. Not that I have already achieved it or I'm made perfect. You know that? Paul himself was not perfect. Think of that occasion between him and Barnabas. And their disagreement about Mark. John Mark. Paul was adamant. John Mark. No ways. We can't carry on with John Mark. Barnabas took Mark and went a different way. Later on Paul writes... Send John Mark to me, for he is useful to me. Paul was wrong in that disagreement, right? He's a man. But he's striving. And he's looking and he's preaching and he's proclaiming and he's drawing people in. And he's modeling for them what a man faithfully following Christ looks like.
1: That's what you look for.
0: You look for a pastor who loves his sheep. Puts his own life and reputation on the line for them. Look for a pastor with eternal perspective. That ministers a lot of that, not in light of what the culture says a pastor should be, a lot of what Jesus says, the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen. And he ministers a lot of warning, admonishing. And teaching and encouraging you to stand firm in the Lord. If that's all he gets right, he's been faithful. Let's pray. Father, grant us this vision of Paul that gives us here. How he loved this church. Help us to look to the scriptures. To find a man who will do this for this church. Let us thank you for those who have labored over our souls and brought us here to this day, maturing us through your word. We thank you for them. Thank you for Mark. (laughs) Now, thank you for the many men that were influential in my life. Help us all to look and count these, and thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.